This morning we are uh, continuing our sermon series, The Gospel, where we've been walking through the book of John to understand what the gospel is, how it changes us, how it affects our lives. Now, the book of John specifically was written so that people could understand, the readers of this book could understand that Jesus is God, that he is Yahweh himself. So he was, at the beginning of the chapter 1 of John, he was the word in the beginning of creation, speaking life into the world. He has the power over evil and over sickness to heal and cure people. He is Lord over creation, uh, calming storms and seas. He's Lord over material things, providing bread for those who needed it. And today we come to John chapter 11, where... Um, Jesus performs the last miracle in this gospel. Now, the rest of the gospel from chapters 12 to the end of the book account for the Passion Week, which is just something uh, that's called f- uh, for the last week of Jesus' life before he's crucified. Now, by the end of the gospel, you should have a pretty good idea that Jesus is God. After seeing these miracles, his, his power and authority over creation itself You get a glimpse as to who Jesus is. And so as we look to the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, uh, I again want to ask you the question, who is Jesus to you? Or rather, who do you believe Jesus to be? Uh, And do you know why he's such good news? Now, we're going to look at the perspective of uh, three different groups of people in this story and see what we can understand from their different perspectives of who they understand Jesus to be or who they believe him to be, uh, and then what can we learn from that. Uh, There's three things I want to say that we can learn. Uh, The first is how to trust Jesus when we can't see what he's doing. Uh, The second, the great comfort that Jesus is to us when we go through difficulties. And the third is the choice that he offers us. So we'll be walking through how, how to trust Jesus when we can't see what he's doing, uh, the, the great comfort that he is in the midst of our pain, and then the choice that he offers us. So if you have your Bibles with, us this, or with you this morning, uh, turn to John chapter 11. We're going to be reading verses 17 to 46, a big chunk here. John chapter 11, starting at verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. 
when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along also with her weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they said. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take the stone away, he said. But Lord, said Martha, I love what the King James Version says here, um, by this time he stinketh. Uh, the NIV, there's a bad odor for he has been there for four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had, been, who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Uh, just to fill in a bit more context in this chapter, um, we came in where Jesus is uh, receiving the request of Martha and Mary to come visit him. And so before this, uh, they had sent a message to him saying, Lord, the one you love is sick. Jesus was off in another town at the time with his disciples. And so when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, uh, instead of, of going right away to Judea to see him, or even instead of you know, what we might expect, Jesus praying for him from a distance for him to be healed, uh, we don't see that. Uh, we, we see that instead it says Jesus waited a couple days uh, in the town where he was and then decided to go out to meet them. And so as they're, as they're getting ready to go back to Judea to meet with Martha and Mary, um, the disciples start asking Jesus if that's a good idea, if you should really be doing this. Because last time Jesus was in Jerusalem, uh, he, he was almost stoned to death for the things that he was saying, for the, the truth that he was speaking. And so the, the disciples were thinking then, well, if we go back to Jerusalem, it's likely that they're going to be even more angry with you than the first time, and they're going to try to put you to death. So they start asking why he would want to go when it's so dangerous. And I love what Jesus says here. He replies, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going to wake him up. Um, and the disciples say what I expect, I'm pretty sure I would have said at the moment. Well, Jesus, creator of everything, if he's sleeping, then you know he's probably going to wake up. Um, now, throughout the Bible, there's the euphemism of uh, falling asleep means death. Now, because Lazarus was still sick, he hadn't yet died, um, they're still missing the point at this. And so Jesus then just directly tells them, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I'm glad it's this way. And we'll explain why in a second. But uh, in, the, in the course of events, they set off for Judea, and Jesus meets with Martha and Mary, the passage we just read. And Lazarus is raised from the dead, and it says that many people put their belief in Jesus because of this. Uh, but some people, others, went to the Pharisees and told them everything that had happened. 
And so all the people of the Sanhedrin got together and met. Now, the Sanhedrin is kind of like our legislation in a sense, where it's made up of uh, people with differing opinions and beliefs, and they come to some kind of agreement together. So there were the teachers of the law, there were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all these different uh, people of status and authority within the community, and they had a meeting about what to do with Jesus right after the section we just read. And they, they knew that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. They, they couldn't deny it because not only were there a few of them at the miracle when it happened, but there were too many witnesses to, to say it was fake. And so they were faced with the decision. They could either turn to Jesus as their Messiah or they could treat him as a blasphemer and they could call him a false, a fake. And so as the story goes, they called Jesus a blasphemer and at this point, they basically put out a, a warrant for his arrest. At this point, they said, if you see Jesus anywhere, come let us know and we will arrest him. So as I said earlier, uh, there's, there's three different reactions in this, this story, this miracle that I want to look at today. And from each of their response, we can tell who Jesus meant or who Jesus was to them. Or rather, I would say who they believed Jesus to be. And so again, I ask, who do you believe Jesus to be? Not who you say he is. Who do you believe him to be? In 1944, during World War II, the uh, Japanese army, or a select group of them, were sent to the Philippine Islands to um, in, engage in some guerrilla warfare uh, on the island where they were uh, told to fight basically until they die. And it wasn't long after they were sent to the island that the allies invaded and kind of overrun the island. And so they were forced to move inwards to the jungle and hide away. And as, as days and weeks soon began to pass, they were running short on their supplies. They were running out of food, ammunition, as they engaged in some uh, attacks. And they even lost a lot of their own platoon members as the enemy uh, fought off them. Now, a little over a year after they arrived on the island, they'd been on this this remote island for a year, taking care of themselves in the middle of the jungle, uh, leaflets were dropped over the entire island stating that the war was now over. And it was incredible news, but when they found the leaflets, this group of soldiers, they, they actually believed that it was the Allies um, trying to get them to come out of their position, out of hiding, so that they could kill them. And so even though all these leaflets were, were dropped, they didn't believe that the war was over. Rather, they chose not to believe that it was over. And as they continued hiding, uh, weeks turned into days, days or months, and months turned into years, and more leaflets were dropped on the island, newspapers were dropped on the island, there were photographs even of their own families with letters specifically addressed to them, encouraging them to come back home because the war was over. And they chose not to believe it, until eventually only one of them was left, Lieutenant Heru Onoda. And it wasn't actually until 1974 that Onoda was discovered. He'd been in hiding for 30 years because he believed that the war was still happening. He, discovered, he was discovered by a college student who uh, said he was, he was going to look for this man as well as the abominable snowman and uh, the Sasquatch. Uh, because they b didn't believe this man was still alive, but he, he found him, and he returned back to Japan and lived out a relatively normal life for the rest of what he had. But for 30 years, he continued to hide, even after the war was over, 
all because he believed that it was still happening, all because his belief was that all of the pamphlets, all the news, all the information he was being given was a lie. If, if Onoda had believed that the war was over, the last 30 years of his life would have looked very different. But what we believe influences the way we act. Or if I could change that up, the way we act is based on what we believe. Now, I don't, I don't think that's new information to anyone, uh, but the reason I say it is because I want us to take a serious look today at the things that we actually believe, not just the things that we say we believe. So coming back to uh, John chapter 11, as Jesus was praying uh, to God before resurrecting Lazarus, here are his words. Here's the prayer that he prayed. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people here, that they may believe that you sent me. Do you believe in what Jesus says? Do you believe that he came as a sacrifice for your sins and for mine? Do you believe that he loves you, that nothing can separate you from his love? Now, I want to say that it's easy to say those things are true. It's easy to speak those things out. But what do you actually believe? What's the difference between believing and saying is our actions? Do your actions and your character show that you believe who Jesus says he is? That he has paid for your sins, that he is in control over everything. So the first group of people that we'll look at in uh, this miracle is his disciples. Now, uh, like I said earlier, the disciples really weren't getting it. They weren't understanding what Jesus was doing because, first of all, they were thinking, well, Lazarus is just sleeping, like, just let him wake up. Or if he's sick, then God, you can heal him. Or Jesus, you can heal him from a distance. That's not a problem. We've, we've seen and heard you do this before. But they still don't understand. And the reason we can understand that, or know that they don't understand is because uh, Thomas pipes up and he says, well, let's go with Jesus so that we might die with him. And he's a little pessimistic and over the top maybe at this point, but he was probably thinking what the rest of the disciples were. Jesus, we just came from Jerusalem and you almost died. We had to hide and get away. You want to go back? This is a suicide mission, it's seeming like. We don't know why you're doing this, but we still trust in you and we're still going to follow you even when we don't understand. You see, the disciples, they didn't know fully what Jesus was doing, but they still trusted him. They still continued to trust that he was truth, that he is life, and that he is the way. They believed that Jesus was good and trustworthy even when they couldn't understand what he was doing in their life. How do you respond to Jesus when you don't understand what he's doing? Do you still choose to follow him or do you turn your back on him and, and turn to things in place of him? Now, we all go through times in life where we simply have to trust God despite what we can see because our circumstances are only within our perspective. We only have a certain uh, view of the things that we go through. We can't have God's view of it all the time. Our perspective is different from God's and that's okay. We don't see the whole picture of what he's doing, but we need to trust him within that. I remember this past summer, my wife and I, we went to a, uh, a cousin's wedding, and as we were flying into Abbotsford, it was during the floods, and uh, as we came in, you could see that the line of traffic was quite long, and so we were figuring we'd probably be delayed in traffic. 
uh, and you could see all these people lined up and um, it wasn't moving anywhere basically. And as we looked ahead, you could see that there was a road, a portion of the road that was flooded, which was causing all of the backup of traffic. And so as we got out of the plane, we knew what to expect because we saw what was all happening from up in the plane. And we weren't, we weren't too frustrated because, well, there's nothing you can do about a road being flooded in the immediate time being. So uh, we knew it would just be a little bit of an extra weight, and that was okay. But as, as, we were, as we were driving in traffic, you could tell that people were frustrated. You could tell that people were just angry. They had a very different perspective than we did, and you could tell by their honking horns and them raising their tallest fingers. And the, the difference between the frustration that they were going through and the things that we could see was all a matter of perspective. Right? They couldn't see that up ahead the road was closed because there was flooding. They couldn't see that up ahead there was a reason and it wasn't anyone ahead of them's fault. Perspective makes a difference, but we can't always have the perspective from up in the sky, seeing down on our problems, looking down on why everything is happening all the time. We can't always see our circumstances from God's point of view. As Paul puts it in the book of Corinthians, now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections as in a mirror, but then we will see everything with perfect clarity. We live in a broken world, and part of living in that means we only see part of the reality of what God is all doing. We don't have God's perspective all the time, though it would be nice. At times, we simply have to trust that he is still in control and that he's still working good amidst what we can see. When, when Joseph was in the prison for years, when he was uh, put into slavery by his own family, he didn't know that God was going to use his circumstances to save thousands of people from the coming famine. But he still trusted God in the middle of that. You won't, even, you won't always understand why Jesus is allowing or leading you into troubles. And sometimes you won't even see how God is going to use those difficulties for good. We can't always have God's plain view perspective of our problems. But we can trust that he is still good despite what we can see. We can still trust that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Now I want to make something as well clear within that. Just because you, as you go through these things, as we all do in life, just because you're afraid or confused or disappointed or worried or whatever else, fill in the blank for how you feel, it doesn't disqualify your faith. These feelings that we get do not disqualify our faith. If you, if you look at to the disciples in, in all four Gospels, constantly they were worried or afraid, but they still continued to trust God despite their fear and their inability to see what he was doing all the time. They didn't let those things get in the way of their trusting God. So how do you trust God when you can't see what he's doing? Hold on to scripture. Hold on to the promises that won't change. It, memorize scripture. If you're going through a season where you can't see that God cares for you, Know that nothing can separate you from his love. If it seems like God's given up on you, know that he who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion. Trust in his words, in the promises that he's given to us. They're the only firm foundation we can rely on through the shifting sands of our time. 
We can trust that Jesus is with us every step of the way in life. But we also have the responsibility of bringing ourselves to him. We need to bring our reality to Jesus. We need to bring the things that we're facing, the questions that we have, and the difficulty of the feelings that we have as well to him. We need to bring these things to Jesus. As as Jesus finally met with Martha and Mary, the first words out of Martha's mouth were, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Can you you hear the pain in her words and the heaviness of it? Sometimes in, in the story, it's easy to jump past little sections like this and get to the good part where Lazarus is raised, but where were you, Jesus? How much pain was in that, as she, in that sentence as she waited two extra days after she had sent a message to Jesus, watching her brother die? And after Lazarus died, I'm sure Martha and Mary exchanged these words many times, if only Jesus had been here. Now, It is worth mentioning that Jesus had actually, before this resurrection of Lazarus, he had actually raised a couple other people from the dead. Uh, There was Jairus' daughter. There was the widow of Nain's son, uh, who he had both brought back to life. And I'm sure that Martha and Mary knew of these miracles, or at least had heard of them because of how incredible they were. So why, even after Lazarus was dead, why does it seem like they lost so much hope? Um... It was, it was a common belief in Jesus' day that it took about three days for the spirit of someone to depart from their body, to be completely separated. And so having been four days since Lazarus died, it was, it was assumed that there was no returning, even in some miraculous instance. There was no ability for his spirit to come back to his body as it was decaying in the grave. But remember... Jesus stayed an extra couple days where he was before he came to Martha and Mary. As, they, as, I, as I said, as they watched their brother die, as they watched him go from sick to bedridden to eventually breathing his last breath, again, they had to wrestle with these questions. Why is Jesus waiting? And Why did Jesus do this? because there was a greater joy and glory made available to them through the suffering, through the difficulty. They'd seen healings before. They'd seen and known that Jesus' power was over everything, over all of creation, but seeing him raise someone from the dead after it had been four days, that was something incredible. It's just a glimpse of how good God is, though. In the midst of our suffering, he can take those things and use it for good. But he's also with us in the midst of our pain. He's not far from us. When Jesus saw Martha's pain, when he heard Mary's desperate plea, Jesus, if only you had been here. When he says these things, Jesus was so close to their hearts that he himself wept. The word actually in the Greek used for uh, Jesus' anger here is better translated anger not just troubled in spirit or bothered by it. He was angry, angry to see the effects of death ravage such beautiful and loving people, troubled by their very own pain, and so he wept, which is why he came to save us. How beautiful is that? He came to pay the price for the pain that we have caused him 
He came to reconcile us back to him even while we were still doing things to hurt him. Do you see how great that love is for us? He desires these things not so he can control us as slaves. He didn't pay the price for our sins so that he could direct us every step of our life to do exactly what he wants us to do and nothing else. Now, we can trust that his direction is good within that, but we're not born to just be slaves who, um, within that, have no life. He came so that we could be children of God, that we could be sons and daughters of God. But I also want to point out that Mary and Martha responded in the midst of their pain. They brought to Jesus what they were going through. When we are angry or, or sad or worried, discouraged, whatever, we're supposed to tell those things to God. We're supposed to bring our reality to him. Martha and Mary both had real questions of God. Where are you? If only you had been here, Jesus. My brother wouldn't be dead. You see, they brought their real thoughts and their real feelings to God. It might seem irreverent, and that's the hard part of questions like these. But if we truly believe that God is loving, that he cares for us, and we experience moments like these, we can ask those questions. Why God did this happen? Why did you allow this loss? David, in Psalm 109, he prays that the children of his enemies would be fatherless. That's a pretty brutal prayer, to be completely honest. And I'm not saying that we should then go and pray that for who we consider to be our enemies, but I'm trying to get across how important it is to bring how we're feeling, how we're thinking to Jesus, the questions on our mind that we wrestle with, the thoughts that keep us up late at night. We're meant to bring those things to him, not to just hang on to them and wrestle with them. I remember at, um, at school at Briarcrest, it's at Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, middle of absolutely nowhere. Um, and I would, I would often go on these late night walks in the wintertime, and usually on these walks, I would just get really angry with God. I would, I would yell at him sometimes about the pain in my life, about the, the pain in other people's lives that I saw, or even just the unanswered questions that I had. And I, I used to call him uh, the great button pusher. Uh, because he knew exactly what buttons in my life to push to just shake things up a bit, to, to change me, to bother me. But what I couldn't see at that time all along while I was calling him this great button pusher was that he was using those things for good, that he was disciplining me, trying to strengthen me, helping me to understand that he is greater than these things, to build a deeper trust in him. But if you don't bring those things to him, your, your, your deepest questions, your realest fears or worries, your troubles, then you're going to find some other way to cope with it. You're going to find something else to fill that void in your life for those unanswered questions or feelings or thoughts. Just like the Pharisees. The third group of people. And what I find amazing about the Pharisees in this story is that they saw Lazarus resurrected. They saw Jesus work this miracle in a man who should have been dead. They knew that he was the Messiah to some degree. And yet, they still chose to treat him like he was a blasphemer. So when the Sanhedrin met, here's, here's what their words were. They said, here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come away and take away our, both our temple and our nation. 
You see, the religious leaders, the people of the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, Sadducees, they were, they were worried about protecting their position. They were worried about protecting their pride. And they were, they were, they were so caught up in, in their own position, in other people seeing them well, that they, they cared to put more to death the Messiah than to put to death their own pride. And the irony here is that Jesus wanted the same thing as them. He didn't want to take away the temple from them. He didn't want it to be destroyed. And so Jesus prophesied, because if they didn't put their faith in him, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming. Jesus and the Pharisees ironically wanted the same thing. They didn't want the temple destroyed, but because the Pharisees held on to this so tightly, they lost both their temple and their Messiah. They lost everything within that. My question is, what are you holding on to? Is there anything you're turning to in place of Jesus? Is there anything in your life you're afraid to give up to him? Because you can't hold on to Jesus and to something else. It's going to tear you apart. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Following Jesus breaks us apart. It shakes us up. It loosens our pride and destroys the identity that we take in place of this world. But it's far better than being crushed under the weight of turning our Messiah away. Galatians 5 uh, says that our sinful nature is like this. It desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to our sinful nature. They're in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do you find any, any parts of yourself in this list? Don't be ashamed. Don't beat yourself up. That's not the point. The point isn't to flog yourself for these things. The point is to bring it to Jesus, to recognize these things and bring it to him. If you're still living in any of these ways, there is hope. If you're willing to come to Jesus and submit those parts of yourself that you've been afraid of, that you've been holding on to, there's a greater joy and hope in one moment of giving it to Jesus than in a lifetime of holding on to your sinfulness. It's hard. Paul even says that our spirit is in conflict with our sinful nature so that we have a hard time doing what we want. But it's the only way we can find true hope and joy and life in this world. Jesus is good. He is trustworthy. And we can't see sometimes what he's doing in our lives. And even when it seems like he's pushing all of our buttons, in those moments, we need to continue to trust that he is good. We need to continue to run the race and fight the good fight. Now, it's hard to let go of those things we've been clinging on to in our lives. It's hard to let go of those things that have given us hope or meaning or even just momentary relief. But if you're willing to believe what Jesus says, there's a greater hope and purpose and joy set before us than anything this world can offer. So 
I want to I want to close with the words of Joshua this morning. If serving the Lord seems undesirable for you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers or the gods of other nations or the gods of those living in the land. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have come to show us what life looks like. We thank you that in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our troubles, and in the midst of the darkness where we can't see what you are doing, we thank you that you are there with us, feeling the pain alongside us, weeping as we weep. Father, I pray for those who have questions. I pray for those who don't know why you're doing what you're doing. I pray that they might not have answers, but that they might bring those things to you and find comfort and peace knowing that you are good and in control. Father, as you help build trust in us, it is hard, but we thank you that you do this. I pray for those who are still holding on to things, that as they, as they learn to let go and to take the hand of Jesus instead, that you would bring comfort and peace, but God, that you would show yourself to be far better than anything this world can offer. And we thank you that you are. Father, you have been good to us. We thank you for your faithfulness, for your love, and for your sacrifice that we can be called the children of God. Amen.